0: Thank you very much daisy um, and it 's great to be here and um, that was a great talk from Lisa, so we definitely have something to live up to now, but i 'm very confident about uh, talking to lily I, in fact i 'm really excited it 's a, it's a great book you 've written uh, it 's called who cares wins and it 's one of the best researched um, at full of facts and wonderful information and i have to say i came away from it feeling really optimistic so lily were you um when you embarked on this were you feeling optimistic about what was happening in the world and what was happening in terms of climate change
1: um interestingly i don't um i don't feel optimistic all the time and i didn't feel optimistic all the time when i started writing it to, in 2016 but i feel like I choose to be optimistic, um, because I think there are, you know, we can focus on the problems and we can focus on all the overwhelming number of things that there are in the world to feel, you know, worried about and scared about and angry about. Um, but then we have a choice in how we respond to that. And if we, we can choose, you know, to, to give up essentially, or we can choose to believe that it's possible to change things. It's possible to chart the future that we want to see. And for me, that's, that's choosing optimism.
0: Yeah, well, I think that um, it would be lovely to hear some of the stories of the things that you found. Um, Is it okay to say start with fashion? I mean, you know, a lot of people have an image of fashion, you have an image of Primark, Mm -hmm. Um, but you went and found a lot of very different things, where people are making fabrics out of recycled bottles and so on.
1: Yeah, I start with fashion in the book because that's where my journey began. Um, I started modelling when I was a teenager. And it was through my modeling work that it opened my eyes to supply chains. And I started analyzing the impact of different companies I was working for, um, sometimes very negative. And then I tried to shift the focus to positive versions and look at supply chains that can be very uplifting to communities that can not be, you know, environmentally destructive. And um, that all feels like a fairly long time ago, but it started a journey of kind of becoming an entrepreneur, then looking at technology and really ultimately just looking at capitalism and Wondering how we can use the existing systems we have um, Whether it's as an employee for a company as a founder of a company as a consumer buying into products How we can kind of use that existing infrastructure to generate the type of change we want to see
0: So tell us about some of the things that you that you found that people are doing in fashion to make it more sustainable
1: Well, I think with fashion. There's a few ways to think about it. One is the supply chains So how are things made? And that's where I started. So for example, I did a project looking at wild rubber in the Amazon and the idea that if you pay local people to tap wild rubber trees and make products from wild rubber, um, you're paying them essentially to protect the forest uh, when all deforestation is happening for economic reasons, because they get a better living. People get a better living normally to deforest land than to keep it. Um, That's one example. I looked at organic cotton, bioplastic eyewear, like multiple kind of versions of that. And of course, fair trade. Um, but I think the other aspect of fashion that I find even more interesting is the idea of the zeitgeist, you know, is sustainability fashionable? And I don't think it was 10, 15 years ago when I was working this space. In fact, it felt quite anti fashion, it was quite niche, um, a little bit ugly, maybe. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and one thing that makes me feel quite positive is not only are supply chains generally getting better, although there's a long way to go, but actually, the the kind of concept of sustainability the idea that we need to think about our environment is becoming more fashionable.
0: You're very interesting on the subject of um, cotton you know that it's the stuff we use the most of and uh, and yet it is an incredible I mean it's always sold to us as sort of lovely and clean and fresh and nice and in fact it's one of the most destructive crops isn't it?
1: Yeah and that was incredibly eye-opening for me at the time because I think early on, my understanding of like impacts and supply chains only really went so far as thinking about sweatshop labor and, you know, who was making the clothes. I'd never really stopped to think, you know, who are the farmers making the materials that are like a step before that. And an awesome organization called the Environmental Justice Foundation sent me their report on cotton, um, analyzing the impact of practices mainly in Uzbekistan. Uh, which have been really disastrous environmentally and also have caused a lot of health issues for um, for workers and child labor, etc. And then there was an article that came out a week or two ago in, in The Guardian saying that they think now one in five cotton suppliers um, are using essentially slave labor um, mm-hmm. through marginalized communities in in China. Um, so it's, it's serious stuff. And yeah. you don't realize that when you're buying a bed sheet or a sock yeah. or, you know, an innocuous product. Um, but we need to start realizing that and then you know creating more positive versions of those possibilities
0: and you you then take us on to food and of course food is a incredibly destructive to not only the environment but also biodiversity but i was encouraged to read you going to see things like vertical farms and
1: yeah i find food super interesting because it's both such a huge part of the problem And it's also offers such a huge opportunity to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, the official statistics are that animal agriculture as we're doing it right now, um, is listed as the first or second biggest um, contributor to greenhouse gases. Um, So it's massive, not to mention the fact that it's causing pandemics like
0: Mm -hmm. COVID
1: um, and many others. So there's a huge problem there and it's using a huge amount of land but there's also a huge opportunity because if you actually farm in ways that um, allow soil to capture more carbon, if you think about more holistic ways of making food, then actually it's about inc- you know, using all of that land or using less of that land that we use for agriculture to turn it into an environmental solution. So I think there's a lot of optimism to be found in the movement around food.
0: And what's your view of things like the impossible burger, the idea that you, you, you won't be able to get people off eating meat, so let's make fake meat? Do you think it's a good idea?
1: I found it incredibly interesting how polarized the environmentalists are in the food camp around meat. You have um, a company like Impossible Foods, I interviewed the founder, Pat Brown, um, who are creating these kind of sci-fi burgers that taste, look, almost bleed like meat, um, to disrupt the meat market, but based on plants, or in other instances, lab-grown. And then you have environmentalists like Alice Waters or Patrick Holford in the UK, who would argue that actually we do need animals to be part of kind of regenerative agriculture and holistic land management. And that actually fast food is the the problem and fake meats are sort of fast food too, and they depend on monocrops. So I tried like every area of the book to explore both sides of the argument um, because I don't want to be didactic and I think it is complex and I hope the reader can make their own decisions. Um, For me personally, anything that helps us get away from industrialized factory farming Mm-hmm. is a positive thing um but I think as with all technology so I so I'd say impossible foods I find very ex- in, encouraging um but as with all technology I think we have to be very mindful about what are the new what are the new um systems we're designing and is that actually optimum and is you know actually are we empowering nature um at the same time
0: what's really one of the many things that's really fascinating about your book is that how many people are trying to in a way Create things in the laboratory that otherwise would have been produced by nature. So I was very interested in these. That you have two stories, or well maybe there's three, but I found two about people creating fake diamonds. Mm. Yeah, and, and can you just tell us about that? Because then obviously it asks the begs the question: if it if you can knock it up in the back room, so to speak, is it still a diamond?
1: Yeah, I mean the diamonds are an interesting metaphor. I try and sprinkle throughout the book. Um, first because my own entry into supply chains began with the diamond check diamond industry. Mm-hmm. I was modeling for a diamond company um, that were being accused of um of moving the bushman the sand from the, the Kalahari, and I ended up going out, out to Botswana to try and understand the impact of diamond mining. And that was the first kind of eye-opening moment for me at 16, 17 years old to understand these stories. Um then I look at a few companies that are creating diamonds so in a really interesting way. So one that are doing carbon neutral um, mm. diamonds that are made in labs using um, uh, gas. And then another one that is even more inspiring, which is capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turning it into diamonds, um, which is kind of amazing it's and crazy. speaks to a whole yeah, market that's growing in that space. Um, and then the very end of the book, at I, I, the end of the book is more philosophical and is about what can we learn from indigenous communities and what are the kind of deeper internal shifts we might want to make or value system shifts we might want to make to address these issues um and there my point is that actually questioning the human desire for diamonds in the first place might be the more important interrogation we need to do
0: yes well you 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 write quite a lot about the uh, the human desire the natural human desire for pretty things i think is is a line that you have and How do we satisfy that in in a world where we have to accept that we maybe have less? I mean, we can't endlessly manufacture everything in a kind of, quote, clean laboratory, can we?
1: Well, I think in a way that's the tension the book is trying to explore between the so-called wizards and prophets. You know, the wizards that would want to innovate our way out of crisis and allow us to have the kind of, you know, Western lifestyles that many of us aspire towards um, and do it in a sustainable way. And the prophets that say actually we need to change those mm-hmm. lifestyles and we need to simplify and reduce. Um, and I try and hold both voices and both perspectives um, together because I think there's something we can learn from, from both of them.
0: Uh, do you think we need both?
1: I think we, I think that the, I think that we could learn a lot from um, communities and cultures that don't emphasize shiny, pretty things so much, because I think it's somewhat, I mean, I get excited by, like, nice designs and beautiful things. I studied art. So I, I'm not saying I've kind of subtracted that from my life. Um, but at the same time, like, what really gives us happiness, if we ask us that question, like, what really do we want to do on our with our time on this planet? Um, actually, you often end up with very non-materialistic values, mm-hmm. which are around relationships and community or, or like, meaningful work, hobbies, um, nature. and And I think shifting, you know, just... It's not even about sacrifice, because quite often the environmental conversation is framed as sacrifice. Don't do X, Y and Z. But if we shift that narrative and we say, let's not make it about sacrifice. Let's talk about the new values mm-hmm. and the things that we're missing in our lives that we want more of. Um, then we might see, then we might shift, see shifts away to, to less materialistic, but more meaningful values.
0: I was very intrigued by you mentioning, because I've read very little about it, the right to repair bill. Mm. Which is in the European courts. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so again, that's another aspect of capitalism as we have it today that needs reform and is arguably being reformed. That in the 20th century, you had the rise of kind of planned obsolescence and designed obsolescence. And there, there are very clear examples of that being a policy that many industries and companies decided upon that they would shorten the lifespan of products. Um, so that essentially they would have repeat customers coming back and back and back, um, which is an environmental disaster because you have a huge amount of waste. Um, and I think it's been quite interesting that there have been political policies coming to fruition in recent years to push against that. It's now illegal in in France, for example, and I think the EU are looking at, um, at kind of single use and how to extend life spans of products. And the right to repair bill began in the US. I think it was focused on the car industry at first, and it's now being replicated or lobbied for in the electronics industry, which is basically saying, as a customer, I should have the right, I mean, it's quite simple, right, in the, in the, in the name, the right to repair the things that I buy. And of course, electronics are so complicated that they're the, they're the perfect kind of example of planned obsolescence because it's easy to make it very hard for consumers to feel empowered to to fix what they have.
0: Yes, it's actually astonishing when you think about it, that you have to have a bill that says you can repair a product. I mean, it it shows you a lot. It seems to me it shows you a lot about the point that we've got to. So you obviously wrote the book before the coronavirus. And how do you think that this will help or hinder um, the fight against climate change?
1: What, the the COVID pandemic? Yes,
0: I mean, what can we learn from it? What can we...
1: I mean... I'm in a very. I feel very cautious right now to make any prophecies because I think that we're in this very unique moment in time where so much is possible, and it could. You know, the we know that things are going to pivot, and actually, in the past, crises have always created pivots in kind of um, humanity's history, and that could pivot in negative and positive ways. And I want to be optimistic that we might see some really positive policy ideas come to fruition, and might you know some internal changes in ourselves might happen too, um, but mindful that it could also go in a negative trajectory. Um, The really big wake up, I think, is just like realizing how connected COVID is to the climate crisis. And that's not in the mainstream conversation, but like we are in a pandemic doing this conversation online through Zoom. You know, as I've done all the kind of book launch conversations over the last few weeks, um, that is related to the climate crisis that's clearly documented and actually scientists have been warning for a long time that we are going to get more pandemics because of humanity's exploitative relationships, the natural world, because of the way we industrialize animal agriculture. And unless we're able to be brave and honest about having those conversations about the real root causes of the situation, then we're going to have to see more of it. Um, and actually it's interesting, you know, hearing not interesting, but like sad hearing that there's also an hour hurricane as part of this conversation Mm -hmm. today. Um, Hurricanes are increasing and that again is documented by scientists because of the climate crisis. We know that wildfires are we know know, Droughts and floods and the list goes on Um, So we are in this moment, you know, we can we can talk about the climate crisis as some like future thing that we're protecting our children benevolently from and An aspect of that is true because it's scary where things may go in or 10 or 20 or 50 years but actually this is very real like it's happening right now and um, and I personally find that terrifying. And those moments where I was writing the book and really engaging with the scientific data that I felt so despairing. But my response to that as I write in the book is to try to say, actually, no, I'm still alive. We're still alive. A lot of people really, really care. And we have lots of very clever ideas and very clever solutions. And if we want to, we can be the generation that turns us around um, because <laughs> If we don't, I don't mean, I'm not going to finish that sentence, but uh, we don't have a choice.
0: Well, I, I would agree with you and I think that everyone listening will agree with you and I think now unfortunately our time is up because I could actually talk to you for hours. Anyway, I can't recommend this book too highly and the details I think are in our chat function. Um, Lily, thank you so much for joining us and please don't stop being an activist. I was very touched to see you learnt it all from Anita or learnt some of it from Anita. I remember going (laughs) wearing one of those t-shirts that said I'm an activist and so it was very nice to see it going on and um, anyway great stuff and thank you so much.